Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How the UK's wealth managers are tackling market turbulence. Prepare yourself for a long wait to move your ISA or pension investments to a different provider. Why do these transfers take so long? And we reveal the hotspots of Britain's income and housing wealth. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, bringing you all of this week's money news. It's a tricky time for wealth managers and their clients. Political turbulence is raising volatility levels in markets. New regulations are changing the way clients' information is presented. And competition is emerging from tech-friendly challenges. Wealth managers are having to work harder to prove their worth to a discerning audience. Alice Ross, FT Wealth Editor, has been delving into all these issues in the course of masterminding this year's Private Client Wealth Management Survey for FT Money, a closely watched review of the industry and the changing needs of its clients. Alice, thanks for joining us. Um, Can you tell us about the key trends that wealth managers are seeing this year or indeed initiating themselves in terms of their investment choices and particularly what's been the response in the UK to this level of turbulent uh, turbulence in the political environment. Yeah, I think political risk has been a really key theme this year, as indeed it was last year and the previous year. It's all because of Brexit. You know, it's caused quite a disturbance in the value of sterling and the value of UK-based assets and all of these other problems that we have, concerns over investment that are affecting the ability of people to value, I think, UK companies at the moment. Um, So even though we have had this sort of Brexit delay until October or who knows when, the uncertainty is still very much there. And so what we're seeing is wealth managers, about a third of them told us that they have reduced client exposure to the UK over the past year. But also about a third of us told us that they are investing back in the UK over the past year. So I think you're seeing this balance of being concerned about the political risks, the value of sterling and diversifying portfolios overseas. But you're also seeing some people think that there is an opportunity now because things have been wobbly for such a long time that they're actually moving back into UK assets. That's an interesting divergence of views there on the the opportunity of the UK. I wanted to ask you about women, particularly as clients uh, of wealth managers. Wealth managers have, have historically you know, been male-dominated businesses and you know, the majority of their clients have been male We've seen a lot of uh, changes in, in, in many parts of society and particularly business. Is that feeding now into the world of wealth management? 
Yes, in a word. The statistics are quite striking. So the Centre for Economics and Business Research has estimated that by 2020, 53% of millionaires in the UK will be female. So more than half, potentially, of these wealth managers management clients will be female. So that's quite striking. Interestingly, the survey did ask what percentage of their clients are currently female. And it's quite close. In most of the cases, it was quite close to 50%. Um, mm. Only one case was it actually over 50%. One client said it was 52%. But um, generally speaking, that's quite close. But where they are really seeing a gap is in the wealth advisors that are women. So it's still there's still a huge bias in terms of the people that employ that are men. And I think there's a widespread acceptance that that could be a problem when you're trying to get new female clients or when you're trying to retain female clients if it's always men on the other side of the table giving the advice. And are they trying to are they making efforts to try and uh, close that gap? They say that they are making efforts. I think as always with wealth management, they always complain about talent, particularly at the higher, more senior end, because those people will tend to be older and they'll tend to be men given the skew that we've had in the industry for so many years. But they are definitely conscious of it. And as I say, they want to woo these new female clients. So it definitely makes sense for them to try and change the balance. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about emerging competition. It strikes me that the, the traditional manager is facing a, a much greater competition these days because you see sort of options for managing your money electronically through you know, your smartphone, through investment platforms that you can control yourself. And then that is particularly appealing to a younger generation, isn't it? How, how are wealth managers making sure that they hang on to the existing generation and the, and the next generation? Yeah, I think competition in the wealth management industry is is quite fierce, partly because the industry is so fragmented. So even the biggest player, which is widely said to be UBS, only has about three or four percent of the entire market. So it's not as if you have one dominant industry player. So they are very competitive, particularly with the next generation. This is a key time for wealth managers when the original family that made the money, when that generation dies and the money is passed on to the heirs, in over 50% of the cases, there are all sorts of studies on this, but it's at least 50%, 60%, they will take that money and move to another wealth manager. So engaging the next generation is really key. And one of the ways that they've recently hit upon to do this is by taking more of an interest in impact investment in ESG things, because the next generation are you know, said to be much more interested in the environment and in making an impact and in making a difference. So if the wealth managers can sort of up their game in terms of the options that they offer in impact investment in ESG, then that will in turn help them cynically, perhaps, but that will help them to retain the next generation and to retain those clients. Thanks there to Alice Ross. All of the issues we've talked about are covered in depth in the Private Client Wealth Management Survey, which is published this weekend in the FT and is available to read online from tomorrow at www.ft.com money. When it comes to switching your energy supplier or changing bank, it's become a lot easier in recent years to move on hassle-free. But what about switching your pension or ISA provider? Customers are waiting months and in some cases over a year to have their investments moved from one provider to another. Kate Beerley, reporter at FT Money, has been looking at what's taking so long and what's being done about it. Kate, these delays seem extraordinarily long. What's the problem with transfers? Yeah, well, this is supposed to be a fairly straightforward thing to move your pension or ISA from one place to another. 
Um, and according to the government, the process should take between 15 to 30 working days for an ISA, depending on, you know, what's in it, how complicated it is. But yeah, we've been having complaints from customers that this is taking months and months in some cases to switch. And people are just giving up at times because it is so labour intensive. Now, this is coming at a time, obviously, when we're meant to be taking more control of our pensions. We're meant to have freedom to, to move them around and we're meant to be engaging with them more by things like auto-enrolment. But actually, there are just a ton of stumbling blocks in this process and there is so little consistency between providers. Now, it should be said that in some cases, people's pensions are fairly complicated and have complicated things in them, which aren't that easy to move over. But in other cases, ISAs can be fairly straightforward with, you know, quite vanilla kind of cash stocks and shares and there is just this lack of transparency and it really comes down to just the fact that there are so many different kind of players third parties in many Mm. of these processes all it takes is for one to be using manual processes instead of electronic or to make some mistakes along the way and suddenly you've got a really long and arduous process and we are hearing that uh, these people on manual processes, you know, you've got people sending checks, endless reams of forms to fill out and send back by post, you know, original copies of your birth certificate, just things that you wouldn't really expect in a kind of modern <laughs> financial process or yeah, situation. You'd sort of expect the uh, the regulator, whether it's the FCA or, or someone else, to be all over this. Uh, have they have they uh, Are they taking a look at it? Well, the FCA is concerned about it. So last year, the FCA published this major study looking at competition between looking at competition in the investment platform market and where the issues are. And it said that long transfer times are one of the big barriers to customers switching between provider. But for now, the FCA isn't going to intervene itself and set down any mandatory timeframes for switching. Instead, it's going to let the industry self-regulate. So it's handed over the responsibility to an independent not-for-profit group called STAR, which has been uh, kind of elected to deal with this and come up with its own guidelines, which it hopes the industry will sign up to. The idea is that companies across the board will voluntarily sign up to certain kind of guidelines, to certain timeframes for switching and you know, hopefully everyone gets on board. But it should be said that one of the big issues here is that with some of these pension transfers, for example, companies are falling between different regulators. So not everyone is covered by the FCA or the pensions regulator. And and that's part of the problem here is to kind of getting people on board to agree and incentivising people to do something about it. I mean, it's, this isn't the only issue we've had with transfers, is it? I, I think we've we've covered other 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 aspects of problems with this with this whole area of switching. Mm, and yes, exactly. Not only are transfers fairly lengthy and labour intensive, but they can be very expensive too. Many platforms charge exit fees, which are a fee you pay every time you leave one platform for another. And that was a big focus of this latest FCA review into competition uh, between investment platforms. And the FCA is considering banning those. But for now, someone who has a bad experience with switching platform might wait months and months and months to have their investment moved. And they might have to pay hundreds of pounds for the privilege as well. So it's not really a good outcome for the consumer. Well, thanks there to Kate Bearley, FT Money investment writer. You can read more about the latest switching problems in her cover feature for this week's issue of Money. Where do Britain's wealthy live? We all know that London and the South East attract big numbers of well-heeled residents and that Mayfair and Kensington are hubs for the super rich. 
But what sort of picture emerges when you look more systematically at income and location across the country? Savills, the estate agent, recently researched exactly that using data from a number of sources to see where households earning more than £100,000 were clustered and how that relates to house prices in that area. It's a question that potentially affects first-time buyers, buy-to-let investors and anyone else trying to buy in a particular area. Lucian Cook, Residential Research Director at Savills, has come in to tell us what the research found. Lucian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Before we get into the detail, can you tell us exactly how you made this link between income and location? How do you know where the wealthy live? Yeah, so we took a a lot of data from Experian, um, who are using a whole series of credit referencing and other sources to establish household incomes. There's some modelling within that, but they're generally considered to be the most accurate. And that's allowed us to get not just to local authority, but to quite fine-grained detail at a postcode level. And of course, in a market where you get real clustering, where the wealth clusters, that's when you start to pick out some of the very interesting trends. What was the most eye-catching thing to come out of this? Well, there was some... It was some really sort of, I suppose, obvious stuff. 60% of households with an income of over 100,000 are either in London or they're in the southeast. One of the stats, though, that I still find staggering and had to almost check it three times to make sure that I was right is that there are over twice as many uh, households with an income of over 100,000 in Wandsworth as there are across the whole of Wales. (laughs) That's interesting because you you'd expect that from Kensington and Chelsea and you know the Westminster, but what Wandsworth, you know, it's, yeah, it and, really and, is a and, and a right hospital. across, actually, pretty much right across inner London and particularly down that southwestern sort of wealth belt, uh, which would pick up your, your Wandsworths and, and go even further out and actually probably ends up somewhere the other side of Guildford. Mm. You have that real concentration of wealth, which partly reflects not just where it goes to originally, but where it migrates to afterwards. I see. I see. And yeah, I was going to ask, how has this changed? Um, You know, it's the interesting bit where you link household income to house prices. What's happened over the past decade when you compare the fortunes in in house price terms of these highest and lowest earning areas? Yeah, well, as you might imagine, in the period post credit crunch, when you had mortgage regulation, it was the highest income households or the areas with the highest income households who had the highest levels of house price growth. So Mm. as they mature, as they go through their career, so their earnings rise. And so you tend to get generally much higher levels of house price growth in an area where perhaps incomes through a career are are more static. Uh, Equally, what you find is the equity moves from one part to the other as people get older and perhaps they look to commute. So the house price growth post-credit crunch in those areas with the highest concentrations is higher than anywhere else. But that's changed. You know, that has changed since the referendum, heavily affected by some of the changes that we saw in stamp duty from 2014 onwards. And since 2016, since the referendum, they've now been the weakest performing markets. Mm. And a number of them, not just in London, uh, but also if you were to go to Elmbridge, um, if you were to go to St Albans, Windsor and Maidenhead, for example, they're seeing house prices on an annual basis fall back. And, and they've seen precious little, if any, house price growth since the EU referendum vote. But those lower earning areas have seen a rise, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And their house price growth remains positive. So whereas we've got at a local authority, 30 local authorities, where more than one in five households 
have an income of more than 100,000. We've got 87 local authorities where it's less than one in 100. And in those local authorities, house price growth is still positive. Mm. It's still running at about plus 4%. So you can start to see how the fortunes have changed, albeit it's taken a long time for those areas with concentrations of of lower income households to see house price growth and recovery post-credit crunch. So prices there are not a million miles away from where they were 10 to 12 years ago. So can we say that really the UK runs on, on a dual cycle, as it were, of, of the housing market is, is working in two diff- at two different gears? Yeah, cases. and what we, would, we tend to refer to it as a leading and, and lagging market. And the leading markets tend to be those which are most affluent. And the ones that play catch up in the second half of a housing market cycle tend to be the least affluent. And everything tells us that we are in the second half of that housing market cycle. And that would mean, for example, that house prices in the Midlands and the north of England over the period of the next five years are going to grow much more than those in London, despite in London having these very high earners those high earners are now hitting up against the limits of mortgage regulation. So that, that's beginning yes. to catch up with them. And I think, you know, that will be the story. Well, the, I, was the gonna, I, was, I was going to ask over the next 10 years, you know, we see the last 10 years have been particularly interesting. And so this phenomenon has been really marked over the past 10 years. But that's been in the context of this extraordinary house price growth. Are we going to see anything like this over the next 10 years? I think, I mean, I think we've moved into a slightly different arrangement or situation around house price growth Mm. Um, because assuming that we get back to some degree of economic normality which relies on getting back to some degree of political normality Mm. um, I suggest then the next thing will be what happens when interest rates start to creep up and does that mean that mortgage regulation starts to bite and does that then act as a bit of a drag on house price growth so Mm. I don't think you'll say the same level of house price growth going forward I think the pattern of it is going to change and will continue to change but equally it will mean the catch-up that we've seen in previous cycles perhaps won't be as strong as it's been this time around. Mm. And when you looked at each region of the UK, because obviously we know about London South East, we know about uh, you know Mayfair and so forth, but when you looked within each region, what were the hotspots of the sort of well-heeled, uh, high-income areas that you found? Yeah, well, some of them, you, some of them you would you would be able to guess pretty easily. So you would know that Virginia Water, for example, would have a a high proportion of households with an income over a hundred thousand. Mm you might be surprised to find that it's over half of those households within that particularly affluent area. But uh, I think it's as you get to different parts of the country, it starts to get more interesting. So Cowbridge um, in Wales would be the strongest um, in Wales. Radlett, we might expect, just into the east of England, just falling outside of of that London boundary. Haversage in Derbyshire coming up. uh, Pontyland in the northeast of England. Wilmslow um, in the northwest of England. So you then start to pick up in those markets where you don't perhaps have the same wealth, really where that wealth clusters. Mm. Thanks there to Lucian Cook of Savills. You can read more about where the wealthy live in a recent article in FT Money on www.ft.com slash money. If you'd like to give us feedback about the podcast or get in touch with our team of experts, email us money at ft.com. And for the latest news updates, follow us on Twitter at FT Money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.